conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back. I'm your host, Deanna Chapman, and today I'm joined by Travis Newton, and we are talking all about 2012's The Amazing Spider-Man. Travis, how are you doing today? Very well. Thank you, Deanna. Happy to be here. You know, I had a little bit of trouble finding someone for this episode because some people were like, nah, I don't want to rewatch that one. Oh, I will gladly throw my podcast co-host Drew Deitch under the bus. He said, (laughs) no, absolutely not. I will not watch Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, but you know what? I am, I am everything that Drew is not. (laughs) (laughs) We love Drew. Don't worry, everyone. Oh yeah. I'm just, I'm just joshing. He knows. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I hadn't seen this in quite some time, but a while back during like one of the Black Fridays or Amazon Prime days or something like that, I bought the Blu-ray set that is like a little book and it has both movies and I think it has a an entire disc of bonus features as well, which I didn't watch that. But I was always interested in revisiting these two movies because of the fact that I had revisited the Sam Raimi ones. I had covered all of the MCU movies, which now includes Tom Holland's Spider-Man. And I didn't see these in theater from what I recall, because I didn't really start going to the movies more until like Movie Pass came along. And I think that was like, I don't know, 2016, 2017, maybe even. So it was fun getting to revisit these. And I actually like this one a little more than I thought I did the first time around. I, I declined to see these in the theaters. It was just in a phase of my life where I wasn't going to the theater all the time. I forget exactly why. But yeah, this, uh, this was something that I was eager to see just out of curiosity because I absolutely love the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, you know, one and two, especially three has its moments. Um, (laughs) Boy, does it have some moments. (laughs) Oh yeah. So coming back to this now, because I, I I certainly didn't enjoy it all that much uh, back when I first saw it, like coming back to it now, I was ready to revisit it and kind of give it another shot and like find out exactly what was going on under the hood with this movie. And, Um, I was kind of surprised at what I found. I, you know, overall assessments we'll get to later, but I was really surprised at how unclassical this take on the character is and how far they wanted to go with that unclassical feeling, Mm -hmm. even though they were, they were doing things to kind of compensate for what fans might've perceived as, as like things the Raimi movies skipped or glossed over or heaven forbid got wrong. Like, you know, mechanical web shooters and Gwen Stacy and uh, Peter Parker's parents and Kurt Connors and all these sorts of things that, you know, me only really coming to Spider-Man fandom as a result of the Raimi movies. Like, I I don't care whether or not Spider-Man's web shooters are mechanical or not. Doesn't really make much of a difference to me. Who Spider-Man's first love is, I you know, there are takes, there's a different version of the character for every single, you know, aspect of the character that's worth exploring. And that's one of the reasons I love into the spider verse. It's just like, there can be as many spider people as there need to be to explore all the facets of the character. This version of the character, however, is such a take on Peter Parker that like wants to issue all of the classically nerdy things about him as a high school character. And I was kind of weirded out by how far they went to kind of compensate for that. They really try to make him the, 
cool nerd, kind of. You know, he's riding around on a skateboard, he gets his powers, he's doing a bunch of tricks. And, you know, one of the things that stood out to me on a second watch is the cast. Not necessarily because it's all entirely great casting. Some of it is definitely weird. Like, Martin Sheen as Uncle Ben is such strange casting to me because I've always known Martin Sheen to play these characters that were largely evil, let's say. Oh, I see. I, I, I don't have that impression of him. So I I thought he was rather, I don't know, an inspired choice for Uncle Ben. I, I certainly okay. didn't mind seeing him. Um, so I, I'll differ with you on that. And I love seeing Sally Field as, um, you know, as the really <laughs> kind of perfect version of um, Aunt May. Like, I, I really do think this is a good balance between somebody like Rosemary Harris, who is such a classical little old lady kind of stereotype that 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 Raimi wanted to put in like the the most you know cute grandma I was like okay I I think Sally Field is exactly the kind of right person I want and Aunt May role like that that to me is a fantastic choice love her yeah Andrew Garfield though you know um I can see him being invested in Peter Parker as a character and wanting to be a good Peter Parker on screen but the character as written in this version is a really strange thing it is an kind of an in-between generations take because millennials like me, we had our live action Spider-Man. It's Tobey Maguire. And then Gen Z has their live action Spider-Man. And that is Tom Holland. Yep. Who's this? And who's it for? <laughs> like he's using all of these weird, like uh, he's using all of these weird Sony product placement products and like things like Bing, you know, just things that have died technologically or that are like largely technologically irrelevant yeah. now. And it's like, yeah, who was this for exactly? It fell into this weird cultural space that hasn't really persisted. Right. And I just want to clarify that my comment about Martin Sheen comes from mostly having seen him in the Dead Zone and Firestarter because I host a Stephen King podcast. So, you know, I was like, oh, this is an interesting choice in my mind based on what I've known about the roles I've seen him in. And obviously, he's been in so many things. I know he doesn't only play evil people, but (laughs) it was one of those things where I was like, is that... Is that Martin Sheen? I had to do like a triple take because obviously he was much younger in those things that I've seen him into. And, you know, I do like Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy. Dennis Leary as her father, Captain Stacy, works pretty well, too. And there were just a lot of people who over the years I had come to see in other things. Like the actor who plays Kurt Connors was in this TV show called Elementary. Sure. And he played Sherlock's brother. So I was just kind of making all of these little connections on the along the way. And for the most part, I do think this is a really strong cast, especially with a lot of the supporting characters. It, it is a pretty decent cast. I, I really do think the best thing the movie has going on is the decision to cast Garfield and Emma Stone together as this couple because they just have great chemistry on screen. And for a while, they did have great chemistry uh, personally, they they were involved in a, a long-term romantic uh, relationship, but their chemistry on screen is like the big argument for why this movie is really worth anything to me. It's like, okay, these two characters sharing the screen together have some fantastic, you know, banter back and forth. I really do think that is the best thing about the movie because otherwise the high school stuff, you know, Garfield was 28 at the time of filming, I think, and Emma Stone is probably 23 or 24. And I couldn't help it. I'm like, look at all these old teens. Yeah. <laughs> these teens are looking a little long in the tooth here. Uh, it it was a very strange high school environment that they that they set up for him. And I don't know. He just 
Peter Parker being this cool skateboarder, you know, photographer, outcast kid who wears contact lenses. I'm like, this isn't really, this isn't the thing like him dunking on flash Thompson. I'm like, I, I, I don't get it. I don't get this take. Yeah. And Emma Stone is, I think five years younger than Garfield. So she probably would have been like early twenties, you know, 23, yeah. 24 or something when they filmed this. And I mean, that's okay because you know, Tom Holland isn't a teenager anymore either. He's in like his early to mid 20s or something, I think. But he looks younger. Sure. He reads younger. Yeah. You know, his his voice sounds way more boyish. And he's got a more boyish sort of, I don't know, persona, face. Like, I believe him more as a teenager. I understand why they wouldn't cast a teenager as Spider-Man. These, they have to cast adults because you can't <laughs> you can't be dependent on child labor laws to make your Spider-Man movie. <laughs> yeah. Or you have to find someone who's like 19. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of tough to do depending on who's going to the auditions, who the people have in mind and everything like that. And I think, like you said, Andrew Garfield works better as Peter when he's with Gwen. And then it's like everything else, I was like, okay, he's kind of more egotistical, I think, than I expected. And obviously with Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies, too, there's the criticism that Tobey Maguire was also too old. But that was, you know mostly post high school and yeah he was older too and it seems like they finally got the age right with tom holland and how he plays peter on the screen yeah i i think the older raimi spider-man you know toby mcguire reading is a little bit older to me i'll of course find a way to justify it because i love those <laughs> movies but to me yeah. like those movies were so invested in creating this like cartoon version of high school that it all sort of relied upon, you know, the the artifice and the fiction that we all agree upon. They're like, oh, yeah, high schoolers in TV and in movies, they all look really old. And, yeah, the Raimi movies kind of lean into that knowing artifice because those movies, like, really are all about, like, archetypes and archetypal characters. Whereas this was something that was trying to be a little bit more fresh, a little bit more grounded, a little bit more, I guess, realistic if you want to, if you want to go there. And it doesn't capture what I like about the character. And if if somebody really loves the movie, that's fine. But like him putting the hoodie up and that kind of stuff, it just wants to be this more darker vigilante inspired take on the character. Like once he actually gets the suit on, which isn't like until halfway through the movie. And that's a fairly long movie. It's like two, two hours, 20 minutes, two hours, 15 minutes. You know, it's it suddenly becomes like this this vigilante story trying to find Uncle Ben's killer and the movie leaves it unresolved. He's like he's he's actively looking for this guy who shot Uncle Ben, the guy with the star tattoo on his wrist. And the movie just, you know, he's so like invested in trying to find this one guy, you know, that they're saying that, oh, Spider-Man's not out there just to clean up the streets. He's doing it to find this one person to exact revenge. I don't think that's a good way for Spider-Man to find his way into heroism, you know, for that with that like extended like I'm going to find this guy. It's it's very Batman. You can tell this is sort of a post Nolan Batman Spider-Man movie. It was very obvious that it was made to be much darker than the Raimi movies and it's funny to say that because of how grounded some of Raimi's career has been in horror, and there are horror aspects to his Spider-Man movies that I really liked. Like, I forget which one it is, but you have Doc Ock, and 
you kind of have this horror type scene where you see the arms and just the shadows of the arms. And then, you know, he's like killing everyone in the hospital room or wherever it is. And yeah, that's Spider-Man too. It's incredible. Yeah. Things like that when done correctly and not necessarily applied to the entire tone of a movie work really well. And like I said, I enjoyed this more than I thought I would on a second watch. And I think there are pros and cons to each of the three guys who have played Spider-Man in the live action at this point. And there are things to like about Sam Raimi's movies. There are things to like about these two movies, which I haven't rewatched the second one yet, but I'm sure, you know, I'd like to try to find positive things to <laughs> say when I can. And because I like superhero movies so much, it's just one of those things where, yes, there are bad superhero movies out there, but I don't think any of them are bad in the sense of, oh, this production value is like absolute garbage and those kinds of things. I think for the most part, especially during this time period, you know, the 2010s, a lot of them have that production value. This one just had a much darker tone than I think a lot of people were expecting. Yeah. And um, I think their their attempt to make Uncle Ben's killing a little bit more sort of, I don't know, uh, realistic and making it sort of less operatic I think it does a disservice to the character. I think it actually does a big disservice to the way um, uh, Spider-Man's, you know, journey to heroism is is done. You know, the, the fact that in the Raimi version, they had actually tied his desire, you know, uh, Peter's desire to actually get into, you know, having the Spider-Man persona into the death, you know, in that, in that movie for comparison, you know, the whole reason that... Um, Uncle Ben dies is that Peter wasn't there to save him because he had been off trying to win a wrestling match as, you know, his new Spider-Man persona. Here, the Spider-Man persona doesn't actually develop until after Uncle Ben's death. And Uncle Ben dies because Peter runs out of the house uh, and tries to buy a bottle of milk from the, the bodega down the street. Yeah. And the there's a uh, guy who robs the... Uh, bodega clerk and uh, shoots Uncle Ben on the way out and the way all that comes together is like what what is happening here what is this I really wasn't a fan of the way they've done that because they actually ape like they try to emulate beats exactly from the way that the Raimi film had done it you know uh, in the Raimi movie there is this part where the burglar who shoots Uncle Ben runs past Tobey Maguire's character in the hallway and there's an echoed line of dialogue where the guy who was handling the money for the wrestling match goes, you know, why didn't you catch the burglar? He was running right past you. And Tobey Maguire throws some line back in his face. I can't remember exactly what it was. Oh, he goes, I missed the part where that's my problem because the guy had said it to him earlier. Here, they do the same exact kind of back and forth where the bodega clerk says, oh, you can't take two pennies. You're two pennies shy and you're, you know, cost for milk, so you can't get it. And so Peter tries to take two pennies out of the pinch of penny thing on the counter because you can't take two. It's not my policy. Or uh, I forget exactly what it is. But when, when the clerk comes out, he goes, why didn't you catch the guy? Andrew Garfield goes, it's not my policy. It's like, oh, come on. What are you, guys, you know, if you want to have it play out a little bit differently, you can at least be a little inventive with it. You know, um, the, the, the fact that it's made so mundane doesn't actually do anything to make it any more tragic. And then they, they do eventually work in the wrestling thing very briefly where Garfield falls through a uh, roof, a uh, rotten roof and into a wrestling ring. 
and he sees this big poster for a, a Mexican style wrestler, El Crusado de la Noche, Crusader of the Night. Yeah. There is your Batman take. <laughs> Yeah, they were definitely on the nose with quite a few things in this. And what worked best for me as far as the story goes is you have this awkwardness between Peter and Gwen, which given that, yes, it's high school, that's, you know, that worked out well. But because they are so much older at times, you're kind of like, okay, this is a little strange here. And, you know, you have the whole thing with Dr. Connors, too, who, you know, we're like 15 minutes in here and haven't even really mentioned him a whole lot. But he plays a huge role in this movie as ultimately the villain. And I do have to say, not a huge fan of the lizard design. But I think he kind of has this moment where Peter not only wants answers from him, but he still kind of looks up to him in a way because he worked with his father. And we see Peter kind of looking for a father figure who can understand what's going on in his head. Because you have that moment with Uncle Ben in the movie where he comes in and he's like, you know, I stopped being able to help you with your homework when you were 10. And it's not that Peter doesn't think of Uncle Ben as a father figure. It's just, it's something that Uncle Ben is not really going to understand and you can you can kind of feel that his relationship with Peter's father was kind of the same way it's like yes he loved him they were family but he didn't really grasp what all was going on I don't know the Peter's parents thing is really tough really tough it's one of my least favorite things about the movie because I think in so many more classical interpretations of this character and obviously that's you know that's up for debate always, but aunt May and uncle Ben, those are Peter Parker's parental figures for, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, they are Peter's parents. Right. Um, you know, when he loses uncle Ben, he's essentially lost the most important father figure in his life. Peter's parents not being there. I think it was a really important thing. Uh, when this character was originally conceived, it's like, well, we're saying that even if you don't have a traditional family unit, even if you uh, don't have your biological parents, you can still be a hero. And that's, I think, a wonderful message yeah. that many people have identified with. And I think it's fantastic. Here, stressing the importance of Peter's parents as plot devices from the very beginning of the movie, I think was a very, very wrong thing to do. Not that, you know, it offended me or, but it just, it doesn't actually capture anything that's terribly important about the character in its classical interpretation and that's okay but it would have to bring something really new and different to the table to argue for that uh that presence in it and they drop the ball entirely because the last thing in the movie is a character going you're still keeping the secret about his parents right and it's like well uh, folks come on like if you're gonna make peter's parents presence important in this film you know about his origin you know tied yeah. into like what makes him him and not just a superhero but like what you know what gives this character something really really special uh aside from his powers is like totally glossed over obviously there are things motivated in this plot by peter's desire for answers about his parents like him wanting to get closer with kurt connors right that's because of his parents and his father's research that he uncovers in a in a, a messenger bag um, the double zero uh, bio cable research. 
I think if they would have dug into that a little more, it would have worked better because once he goes to Dr. Connor's house and says, you know, I'm Peter Parker, it's like they talk about his dad briefly, but then all of a sudden it's all about the two of them working on this problem together. Right. The stuff with the parents and the dad in particular kind of just gets dropped off at some point throughout the movie. And it would have had a better impact if he found out that Connors was the lizard and then he was kind of maybe searching for answers in a way like, what would my dad do because his dad knew Connor so well or something like that. You know, it didn't even have to be that detailed, but it feels like they used them to introduce Connors. And then it was just like, okay, well, this is basically, you know, another quote unquote father figure for Peter in the science world. So we'll just kind of forget about the whole thing with the parents. Yeah. And I think that might work a little bit better if, the relationship between Connors and Parker was really good on screen and, you know, they had, so, you know, sought to foster that a little bit better. You know, what I love about Spider-Man 2 is that one of the first scenes you have between Doc Ock and Peter is this really tender scene uh, with Doc Ock and his wife, Rosie, and Peter just sitting around having a really warm and lovely conversation. And there's there's that kind of human warmth is totally absent from their relationship here. And I think their desire, you know, their, or at least their seeming like intention to present Connors as this tragic figure kind of fails because it's pretty clear that he's going to go evil from the beginning. You know, them casting Risa Fons maybe telegraph that a little bit. I think he might be a little typecast. I'm glad you mentioned that they kind of dropped the parents thing off. Or they kind of forget about it until the very end of the movie because they seemingly do that with a lot of stuff. It's like, you know, Uncle Ben's killer still on the run. The movie forgets about it. And I don't know whether they were just intentionally kind of mystery boxing certain elements of the plot to deal with in later movies. Again, not followed up on exactly. That approach, I think, really hampers this movie's ability to tell a full story. Lots of dad issues in this movie on both sides for, you know, Peter and Gwen. And obviously you have, like we said, the lizard as the big bad in this. And it's not even that Connors was trying to be the bad guy, you know, and we also in this movie get hints of Norman Osborn being involved and he's the one who wants Connors to figure this thing out faster than Connors is ready to. So Connors uses himself as the first human test subject and that goes horribly wrong and you see how his good intentions come at such a high cost because as soon as he turns into the lizard, any cognitive ability he has kind of goes out the window. Yeah, it just becomes a, a big monster. I'm not sure why Connors injected himself. I know that there is a scene with Irfan Khan's character where Irfan Khan's character comes into Dr. Connors' lab and says, look, you need to start testing this formula on human subjects and you need to start doing it now. And Connors just says, okay, like, no huge moral quandary. Connors doesn't quit. Why? I understand that Connors has the motivation. I think he did say he wasn't ready yet. So then I think maybe he just did it on himself because of the pressure he was getting. Right. But what kind of pressure? Did they have his sister hostage? Like, what are the stakes for the character in that moment? I understand right. he wants to regrow his arm. Yeah. I understand that. But if he's not ready to shoot this stuff in himself yet... Why would he agree to do it and not just say, you know what, I'm going to take my research elsewhere? Eventually, he does take his research elsewhere, 
to the sewer. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of wondering how he set up that lab in the sewer and nobody noticed. Because it's not like some of those items weren't large. <laughs> comic books. Yeah. What, what I don't understand is why all of the lizards were attracted to his laboratory. That's that's interesting. Uh, Peter manages to follow a trail of lizards into, um, I don't know, the lizard pipe. The one pipe yeah. that... Uh, uh-huh. It's very very Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lots of things going on subterranean. Yep. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the lizard himself, like once Kurt Connors manages to fully transform, there are some cool effects. Like when he first regrows his arm, there's this like I don't know if you've seen Cronenberg's The Fly. There's this kind of yes. like body horror transformation yep. stuff going on with the arm that initially looks quite good when it's practical. The design of the lizard himself, it's not awful, awful CGI. It's in a period of, of CGI where it's like, okay, some of it's really, really great. And then there's still a, a lot of it's like, you know, really, really questionable. Luckily, we're now out of that era of CGI and most CGI is just fine. But yeah, the the design choices in this movie, as far as like the technology and the look and the suits and the monster, I I don't really agree with a lot of those design choices. Um, The Spidey suit, I think, is uh, a really bold take on it. Um, And I, I admire some of the choices they've made with the new suit, but ultimately it doesn't look great in the movie. Uh, the red is too dark. The texture is really, really apparently. He almost looks like a basketball. That's what I think he looks like. <laughs> He's got a basketball texture. It's it's not hideous, but I just don't think it really captures what's great about the look of the character. Because like Spider-Man is about big, bold, red and blue primary colors. Like That's what pops about him on the page. And the silhouette of this character is is not one that's particularly special from a design standpoint. It just looks like a dude with a smooth head, right? Yeah. A noseless man. (laughs) And so their decision to show Spider-Man largely at night and in silhouette with harsh edge lighting and backlighting, it's like, well, there's the silhouette, but it's not like Batman, which, which, which has an iconic silhouette because of the cape and the pointy cowl and all that kind of stuff. Spider-Man only has a recognizable silhouette because of his poses, and he's only going to hit those poses some of the time. So it's like if they had made the red brighter and hit him in the shadows a little bit less and things like that, I think the character just would have looked better on screen. It would have looked a little bit more, I feel like, the character should look. Yeah, and I think that played a part in why I liked the fight scene at the school the best, because that one is happening during the day. Granted, you know, they're knocking the lights off the ceiling and things, so the lights go out and it still ends up being a little dark. And, you know, then comes this Stanley cameo in the library. And I did catch a Stephen King book falling on the floor. (laughs) Uh, uh, Which one was it? I couldn't tell. It just said Stephen King in big print down the spine (laughs) so it was almost like they had a jacket put on it or something because you know most books have the title of the book on the spine but this just had his name and like i I think you might be the perfect person to notice that detail (laughs) i rewound the movie just so i was like did i just see that is that a thing and of course you know the cover was face down so i couldn't see the cover either it was like the spine in the back of the book but anyway that aside i thought the fight scene at the school was a bit better just because you could see things a little more clearly whereas the sewer fights things kind of get a little dark and muddy with the scenes and like you said a lot of this is done at night and what i have always found interesting about some of these earlier superhero movies because of CGI not being quite as good as it is now 
is that a lot of the fight scenes have to happen in the dark. And that still happens with current comic book movies and stuff. You know, Wonder Woman 1984 had a big fight scene happen mostly in the dark. And it's just one of those things that I always find a little disappointing because I get you have to cover some things up. But at the same time, like you said, his suit didn't pop enough off of the screen for that to be effective during a lot of these night scenes. Yeah, there just wasn't enough fill on the shadows to to really make him recognizable as, you know, this this classical, you know, or this classic character. And uh, yeah, I just don't like the look of the the character. And, and a lot of that, you know, it's not just on the costume design. A lot of it is just, just lighting choices and, you know, uh, seeing, you know, staging things at night it just doesn't quite work for um, the look of the character. But there's one other big element of this movie that has aged very strangely. And that is the conflict between Peter and uh, Captain Stacy. And they have some very, very poorly aged debates over the ethics of policing <laughs> versus vigilantism. And it's like, oh boy, this is uh, the wrong conversation for this moment. Um, yeah. You know, Peter's arguing with Captain Stacy over dinner. They're eating, oh, Branzino. Put a nickel in your penny bank every time they say Branzino in this movie and you'll end up with like a dollar and a half by the end of the movie. But Captain Stacy asks Peter, he goes, whose side are you on? And Peter goes, I'm not on anyone's side. I saw a video on the internet. Peter, what are you talking about? <laughs> what is this? Yeah. And I think, too, what they did with Captain Stacy's character was basically they had him replace J. Jonah Jameson in a sense, because... Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, you know, Spider-Man's relationship with the cops is always going to be a little complicated, but yeah. Yeah, but you have him doing the press releases, calling Spider-Man quote-unquote a menace, you know, doing all of the things that we're so used to hearing from J. Jonah Jameson. And it felt like they wanted to have J. Jonah Jameson in this because you get Peter taking the photos and you see later in the movie a copy of the Daily Bugle. And it's like they set all of that up for Peter to be a photographer. And, you know, when he was fighting the lizard, he webbed up his camera in the sewer and had it taking pictures. He left it. Connors found it, crushed it. And it really felt like they wanted that element of Peter's story, but then just also left it out entirely. Yeah, you know, clearly they decided to trim back on certain things, you know, because yeah. of the three Raimi movies, if there's one character who comes through all of it just being, I think, really perfectly performed, it's J. Jonah Jameson. Luckily, they've decided to keep the same actor around for his MCU appearances. Um, even if they've, even if they're not using it for a multiverse thing, it's like, yeah, you, you're never really going to, do it the same way you're never going to attain that kind of perfection that they, they reach in the Raimi movies with that character so you know I'm not against this movie doing something different I do wish it had done a little bit more in certain moments to further differentiate itself instead of just kind of reusing certain beats from the Raimi movies you know certain familiar film familiarities from the from the Raimi films I do wish that it had maybe gone even a little further a little stranger the differences it does do are just kind of like strange like this kind of twist on the character has him doing montages of skateboarding while uh, Coldplay's Kingdom Come plays over the soundtrack. <laughs> and I'm like, this is exactly the kind of thing that really dates this movie and yeah. puts it in this like bizarre... I don't know. It's it's like something that fell between the couch the couch cushions. One of the couch cushions is millennials. The other one is Gen Z. And Amazing Spider Man fell in the crack. <laughs> it's just down there. 
Yeah, there are a lot of things that definitely date these movies, but to talk about some of the things that I was enjoying while I was watching this, you know, I mentioned the fight scene at the school, and I think just his relationship with Gwen is what kind of makes this movie worth watching, I think. Yeah. Because... You know, in the Raimi movies, a lot of it is about Mary Jane, and Gwen does appear in the third movie, but it's, like, super brief, so for them to switch things up and have him be with Gwen in this series, I think that was something that obviously worked out well, one, because they really did like each other, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of helps in these instances, and you really get that feeling of... Gwen has this struggle because she knows Peter's identity because he tells her and only her, and she has a captain for a father. So, <laughs> you know, she's kind of torn between the two most important men in her life. And I think it makes that final big battle much more important, not only for Gwen, but for both Captain Stacy and Peter as well. Yeah, uh, I do like that conflict where Peter has to make, you know, uh, a promise to Captain Stacy, basically, you know, at, while Captain Stacy is dying of this grievous wound that the lizard gave him and, you know, promise not to be in a relationship with Gwen. And Peter very solemnly swears, yes, you know, because it's the right thing to do, right? And then just a few short scenes later, he's like, ah, screw it. <laughs> and that's the moment like the movie goes out on. And I was like, they wanted that sequel set up and I don't think that was the right way to do it. But I think if they would have continued that sort of tension between him and Gwen for like the start of the second movie, at least, and then maybe they kind of decide to not keep that promise together because she knows that her dad made Peter make that promise you know, she's not stupid by any means. She knows exactly what her dad had said to him. And because she makes that comment earlier in the movie, like, you know, I spend every day not knowing if he's going to come home. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to be the same thing with Peter all over again. I would have loved to see a little more tension between the two of them as they try and figure out, should we, should we not, instead of it just ending on that kind of... I don't want to call it a comical note because... It was trying to be funny, but I don't think it was as funny as it thought it was. It Whatever the case is, like, it's a really off note to me because yeah. I don't think you necessarily have to end this story with the two of them together. And I understand that one of the best things, like, really, the only thing I'll go to bat for in this movie is the fact that they have great chemistry on screen together. And I really like seeing these two characters, um, you know, have repartee and banter. Like, that's that's nice. Um, so the fact that they tried this version, you know, they gave this, this version of the movie where the characters get back together suddenly and they kind of throw Captain Stacy's dying wish, you know, out the window. I was like, I, I wonder if there were test screenings of this movie with the original ending of them not getting together again. Yeah. And people really, really disliked it. Like that. I don't know if that's the truth or not, but this is the kind of stuff that happens 
in rewrites and in reshoots where they're like, oh, we think audiences won't like this. We have to give, you know, and endings are especially important when it comes to um, audience ratings. If something doesn't have an ending that they like, they will trash it. Uh, regardless of the the rest of the movie, so if the movie just doesn't end on the right note, they will they will hate it. And this was probably the more audience friendly option is to to have them be together. But the fact that they're like so brazenly just throwing Captain Stacy's dying wish out the window doesn't come through sound smelling correctly. It's just off. Ugh. It also feels out of character. And there are a number of things throughout this movie that felt a little more out of character than we're used to between the Raimi movies and if you've read some of the comics, but it was an odd note to end on. I was like, oh, that's weird. But, you know, I don't hate this movie by any means. I think it's fine. I don't think, you know, any of the Garfield movies are, you know, in my top three even for the Spider-Man live action movies overall. And you mentioned Into the Spider-Verse earlier, and I think that one just absolutely nailed everything you want in a Spider-Man story. And obviously it being animated, you have different challenges when it comes to these live action movies. And with Tom Holland being so involved in the MCU and involved with Iron Man in particular, you know, that's going to have a totally different vibe. But I think for these movies, the darker tone maybe wasn't the best choice, but I think the way that Peter grieves is very believable in this too. Yeah, for a teenager, you know, him being a moody teenager, I think that all kind of tracks. And again, their desire to keep this take a little bit more grounded and realistic in this film. I can't say I admire their commitment to that. I understand they were (laughs) committed to that. uh, And I understand why they were committed to that, because that's what they thought would sell better, you know, after maybe, you know, people thinking the Remy take was a little too goofy or Mm -hmm. or anything like that. Folks, they're comic books. They're going to be a little goofy. This to me, falls into a zone where it's like, okay, there were good Spider-Man movies before this, and there have been great Spider-Man movies after this, you know, and and there have been so many different takes on the character in movies and in video games that have really shown very, very brightly outside of the comic book incarnations. It's like, okay, those actually made really successful arguments for their existence and like the differences in their take, like the the Spider-Man PS4 game and the things they decided to change about Peter. It's like, oh, okay, that's that's really interesting the way that they've decided to, to change that up or the way they've, they've decided to change Mary Jane. Like, yeah, I loved all that. I need to download that. I bought the Miles Morales game for the PlayStation 5 and it comes with the download of that one. So oh, nice. I'm very interested to see how not only Peter's story plays out in his game, but, you know, I started playing the Miles game first because, you know, that one I had the disc for. But yeah, I love the the PS4 game, the, the Spider-Man PS4 game, which now has been remastered for PS5. I, I thought it was great. Yeah. And I've never really thought about considering those games as stories. Because, well, one, I haven't had a PlayStation since the PS2. So, you know, (laughs) it's been a while. It's been a minute. So I'm very interested to see how the video game iterations of the characters play out because there's a lot to enjoy about Peter. And there's some stuff that I don't agree with in the comics, you know, the early comics. It's like Aunt May looks so old and frail in those. I'm like, how is she 
Peter's father's sister when Peter's father would have to be like 40 or 50 and she looks like she's 800. Sure. That's that's just the classical version of yeah. the character that they thought that just, well, she's going to be a little old lady. And so that's why they cast Rosemary Harris in the right. Raimi movies. It's like, this is what they believe, you know, this was their version of the character. And I, I totally get that. And the, the Spider-Man PS4 has such a good story. At least I, I I thought it was great, you know, but that the ending completely knocked me on my ass. It was, it had a fantastic ending. Actually, I'm not going to spoil that. I'll leave that up to you to discover, but <laughs> I love you. the ending of the of the game. Uh, and I hope you get to play that um, before long. But anyway, yeah, uh, I think if there are good things to be mined from this movie, I hope that, you know, they can find their place in pop culture over time. Uh, I, I don't know if it'll happen because the sequel to this, while it continues some of the weird J.J. Abrams mystery box kind of stuff, uh, it takes such a different direction. and goes really big and colorful and cartoony and, you know, has a very different look about it. Um, the, the suit is super, super classical. Uh, I, they, Way more they changed so much. Yeah, they changed so much about the direction. Uh, and while I won't be on that episode of Welcome to Geekdom, <laughs> I will probably end up rewatching the movie so that I can enjoy the conversation um, that you, the, you all will have. So uh, that is all I have to say about Amazing Spider. My only final thought is that I wish we got a little more Aunt May and Peter scenes because, you know, a lot of it focused on Uncle Ben at the beginning. And, you know, Uncle Ben was always the one confronting Peter about what he was doing. And Aunt May was not necessarily apologetic, but she was willing to be a little more understanding than Uncle Ben was. So then you kind of have these tense moments in the house and you have Peter storming out and breaking the window in the front door and (laughs) you really don't get a good sense of his relationship with aunt may at the very beginning of this it isn't until you know after uncle ben's death that you get a little more of that and i wish they would have just had you know maybe one or two more scenes with her and peter because for the most part peter was trying to not necessarily ignore her, but hide everything from her. She's another one of those elements that kind of vanishes out of the movie after a particular time. Yeah. And I wish they would have kept her as more of a through line, like maybe have a scene with her and Peter after Captain Stacy's death. Sure. Yeah. Because I don't think we got that. No, I don't think she reappears. May, uh, no, she does. I think she uh, she appears when when uh Gwen, stops and Gwen by? are talking yeah when yeah. Gwen stops by and you know she mentions that but I I do think that she should have been a more important player in the story because you know don't waste Sally Field as Aunt May just don't do it that was like a quick one or two lines after mm. Gwen walked away I think from her and Peter talking at the door so yeah. it it really just felt like that was a great moment that they could have put in there and it ended up just kind of being like oh that's the girl kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yep, pretty much. Yeah. And I mean, it is what it is. I still had fun with this. I gave it a three out of five. It's not spectacular, but it's also not the worst thing I've seen. So that's always a plus. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know what I would rate this. In a, I'd probably give it, um, I don't know. Two, two and a half, something like yeah. that. Nah, two and a quarter. I'll, I'll give you that. Two and a quarter. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you sounded like you were a little more in the two range because there are things that look good about this movie. There are things that don't look quite as good. And like you said, this was kind of that limbo period where you're just like, who is this movie for? Because then you have Tom Holland's Spider-Man, what, three, four years after the second Amazing Spider-Man? 
Yeah, well, uh, there is there is this phenomenon called an Ashcan movie or an Ashcan comic. Like, basically, it's a comic created solely to establish trademarks or rights or like the the rights to something. And an Ashcan movie is a movie that gets made solely that the rights holder can hold on to the rights to make the uh, movie. And yeah. it is this is often called the Ashcan Spider Man movie. It's like, well, Sony needed to make a Spider Man movie so that they could hold on to the rights. And I I think a lot of people believe that is this movie. Like it was made just so that that Sony could keep making Spider-Man movies. I don't know whether it is officially an Ashcan movie or not. You know, certainly that would have been one of Sony's motivations in making the film because Spidey was a money machine uh, and it still continues to be to this day. Yeah. Also that. <laughs> yeah. It's to me, it's just a uh, not a strong enough take. I think to merit a rewatch for me, I think this will be the final time I see the movie. But you okay. know, like I said, I, I don't hate it. Um, yeah. But it's it is a, a strange curiosity. Yeah, and I think that happened with the Fantastic Four movie as well, the most recent one, <laughs> because I think yeah. they had to make something to keep the rights to the characters, and that's what they decided to do. And you know, I understand that, and obviously these movies are going to make money. It doesn't really matter unless you have a weird situation like Wonder Woman 1984 where it's not really coming out in theaters. But for all of that movie's criticisms, I think it still would have made a ton of money had theaters been open. Yeah, more than likely. Uh, we will see. As far as you know, what's going to happen to the next Spidey movie, I'm sure that we'll be, we're going to be able to see that in theaters. They're going to hold that one back. Yeah. I mean, they're still holding Black Widow, so... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Marvel wants people to go to the theater to see their movies. Um, no question. Before we go, Travis, I want to recommend some things. So if people either, well, like this or didn't, they have some other options of what to check out. So what is your recommendation today? Uh, I've already spoken about it. It is the Spider-Man game for PlayStation 4 and now PlayStation 5. Uh, it is such a good blend of what the live action adaptations have gotten right about Spider-Man over the years. Also mixed with what um, people love about the classical rendition from the comics. It is managing to strike this really odd balance because normally you know we we expect adaptations that incorporate you know all aspects of a character to kind of wind up feeling like there wasn't really a take it was you know kind of bland or trying to appeal to too many people instead what they managed to do at insomniac when they wrote this game is to find a version of the character that um really worked as a contemporary take but also featured um those classical elements you know they they chose to start, you know, the game off with Spider-Man out of high school, but still fairly early in his career as a hero. And what I love about it is that, you know, despite his rise to heroism and, you know, accomplishing incredible things, he's still struggling to pay his rent. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. Like that's that is one of the essences of the character to me is that Spider-Man should never have the kind of problems that you can solve with uh, Stark, Tony Stark money, you know, <laughs> uh, this should always be a bit of a struggle. You know, he should always be in danger of getting evicted or, you know, uh, getting his bike stolen or something like that. You know, it's just that kind of a standard down and out normal human stuff that makes the character so relatable. And uh, the, the game does that in a really interesting, beautiful way. Yeah. I'm definitely excited to dive into that one when I have some spare time, but in case you want to explore sort of this darker tone of Spider-Man, Marvel does offer some more adult titles, really. And they've done this over the years through their 
Max titles, and the one I want to recommend today is a Marvel Knights title, and it's Mark Miller's run on Spider-Man. There are 22 issues total in this run, but it looks like Miller's comes to an end with issue 12, and this is something I just started reading because I was curious as to what other darker Spider-Man stories exist out there, and obviously over the years there have been so many Spider-Man comics, so it's kind of obvious that they would have some stories that lean a little darker than others, but I think Marvel Knights is kind of a blind spot for my comic book reading, especially with Spider-Man, because I had started from the beginning, and I was reading through a bunch of the comics, and I think I made it to, like, I don't know, The Amazing Spider-Man number 50 or 60-something, which isn't too deep, you know? (laughs) Uh, Truthfully, I am very, very much uh, lacking in my knowledge of the Spider-Man runs overall. You know, it's just not a character that I've read a ton of. Uh, It's a character I certainly love, but I just, for whatever reason, haven't dived into the comics. What's a good place to start? That that would be something I'd be curious about, because I don't know if I could start all the way at the beginning and read all of Spider-Man. That's just not something I think I'm capable of. Yeah, if you want the big notes without having to go through and read every single issue. Spider-Man Life Story is actually really great too. I did a video on it recently and it came out a couple years ago. Chip Zdarsky's the writer and it goes through these iconic Spider-Man moments, but he does it as if Spider-Man had actually aged and became an old man. Drew Deitch, my co-host on the Genre Vision and Finflix podcast, had mentioned that this uh, this was a really good run. And I liked your video on it. So uh, I think that'll be my next step. Yeah. And then from there, you can kind of decide if you want to dive into those iconic storylines a little more. They're usually pretty easy to find. I think if you just Google Spider-Man life story and re- read the Wikipedia page or something, it'll give you like the exact issues that it's referencing. Uh, gotcha. Gotcha. But yeah, I think that's a good place to start if you want a contained story, because so much relies on big events, reboots of the lines. And it's kind of one of those things where Spider-Man has so many issues. And you can say the same about, you know, the X-Men, the Avengers. Those are the titles that have just so much you know fantastic four too because they've been going for so long and and in different iterations oh my god and in different iterations so it's kind of hard to know where to dive in sometimes but i think life story is a good one if you just want something that's short contained and gives you a lot of what the spider-man comics are about in one go cool Thanks. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much, Travis, for rewatching this and coming on to talk about it. It's a pleasure as always. Thanks for the invitation. And uh, I'll come back um, doing something else soon enough. Yeah, as soon as I uh, get it together and have more time to listen to some music, I think we're doing that Jimmy World episode. Yes, absolutely. Let's do it. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of Welcome to Geekdom. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so through our Patreon. If you want to follow us on socials, you can do so at Geekdom Pod on Twitter and at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.